Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 44th episode of Breaching Extinction. This week, we've got a very special episode. Our previous Porpoiseode co-host and somebody who's been on here many times, Ellie Sawyer, uh, interviews Monica Whelan-Shield, one of the curators of the Orca Behavior Institute and author of Endangered Orcas, about her experience in the San Juans, what she's learned, and her thoughts on resiliency. Hope you guys enjoy it. Hey, this is another episode of Breaching Extinction. I'm Ellie, and uh, today I'm here with Monica Shields uh, to discuss a couple things. One, Orca Behavior Institute. Two, her new book, relatively new book, uh, Endangered Orcas. Uh, so tell us, tell us how you got your start with killer whales. Yeah, it started at a pretty young age for me. Um, I have always loved whales and dolphins in particular, and um, it seemed to be kind of the point of no return with killer whales when I saw them in the wild for the first time. And it was on a family vacation to Alaska when I was 12, and came back home from that trip and was like, where else can I see these whales? And that's when I learned about the Southern Residents and the San Juan Islands, and uh, like I said, there was no going back after that. Very cool. And you went on a, you then went on a family vacation to the San Juans too. That's right. That. Yeah. A couple of years later, um, my parents and I came up here and we saw the Southern residents for the first time, um, both on the water. We got to see a super pod and then saw them from shore at Lime Kiln. And, uh, I knew I had to do whatever I could to figure out how to get back here. <laughs> and nice. so, um, you know, started as a high school student interning at the whale museum, um, ended up working on a whale watch boat through college. And then after graduating college, moved to the island full time. Nice. Very cool. What was, uh, so eventually you did move to the islands and you founded Orca Behavior Institute. What, uh, what was your inspiration? And then going further into that, what is the primary objective of Orca Behavior Institute? Yeah, it was, it was interesting how it came about. I mean, a big piece of it for me was that I had kind of, I had gotten out of the research side of things after college and was missing that. But also there was a group of us that, you know, we would watch whales together a lot and talk about things we were seeing. And we really felt like there was a lot of really important research going on that was sort of more specifically targeted, you know, the collecting the fecal samples or flying the drone over the whales to get uh, assessment of body condition. But a lot of these teams were either, you know, very focused on one particular objective or here for very short periods of time in the season. And we felt like we're here anyway. We're watching whales anyway. We're, you know, have the scientific background and there's all these sort of long term, broad scale changes that we've been seeing with uh, it started with the southern residents, but with the big killer whales as well. And so we really set out to put some data to some of these sort of what were at the time anecdotal observations about things that had changed. And that's on, you know, the broad scale with the sightings and the southern residents not being here as much and the big killer whales like coming in 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 unprecedented numbers. But then also behaviorally as well, like people, you know, noticed that we're not seeing super pods anymore. We're not seeing resting lines anymore. Um, so what, you know, how, how's the behavior of the whales changing when they are here? Um, and that's, you know, that's a, it's a long-term project, but it's, uh, one of our original objectives is to kind of conduct this long-term behavioral research and document this really pretty rapidly changing ecosystem. Very cool. Um, 
in your studies of these whales, you found that they're deeply cultural creatures. And, and, you know, being out on the water myself, I can definitely see that. Um, what are some examples that you could give of those cultures? Yeah, the, the first example that I encountered was their acoustics. And that was one of the first things that drew me to them is that every group of killer whales, you know, every population anywhere in the world, they're acoustically unique. And they have these dialects that are you know, culturally transmitted from mother to offspring, and they're sort of a badge of social identity of not only what population you're from, but what acoustic clan you're from, what pod you're from. And uh, that's, it's pretty unusual to have that, um, especially among mammals, to have these sort of learned uh, dialects that are um, passed on from, from one animal to another. Um, and then just behaviorally, there's a lot of things that that are unique about them like having had the opportunity to watch the big killer whales a lot more in recent years it's uh it's really striking when the southern residents come back how different they are they're just so much more active at the surface they're you know they move through the waterway so differently they're much more predictable in their surfacings they kind of you know spread out in the straight and travel in a straight line from point a to point b whereas the big killer whales are in much smaller groups typically and kind of skulking in and around all the little rocks and into all the little coves and everything and just just everything about them is different and the more that you get to observe them uh the more you start picking up on a lot of those nuances that's a that's a good word skulking we've had the t18s in here for a while too and like (laughs) that's definitely a good descriptor for the t18s um well, you you got a book out last year, I believe. It was 2019, yeah. Endangered Orcas. A great read for any of our listeners who are interested in, in reading more about orcas. What inspired you to write down write the book? Yeah, despite the southern residents being kind of such a well-known population, and we talk about them as being the most studied whales in the world, I was really surprised even when I first got on scene here like 20 years ago that there wasn't really a book where you could read up on their history and and get to know them. There's sort of bits and pieces of information about them all over the place, but not really kind of a comprehensive story of, of how we are in the situation we are with them and, you know, and the declining population. And I was really inspired by Eric Hoyt's book, Orca, the Whale Called Killer, and the way that he interwove the stories of the people and the stories of the whales and, you know, the science and the history all into, you know, a really accessible book. And so my, um, my goal was to sort of pick up the story where he left it off, which was right at the end of the capture era, and sort of shift the focus from the northern residents, which his book focused on, to the southern residents and say, okay, in the last 30, 40 years what's happened how has our relationship with killer whales in these waters changed and how did we get here and where are we going with a declining endangered population very very cool that's fair um you and i have been part of many conversations surrounding the role of whale watching vessels and you actually write about it in quite a bit of uh, endangered orcas Um, a lot of people accuse whale watching boats as loving the whales to death Others view them as more like sentinels for the whales and a means to ensure other boats on the water are behaving as they should be. Um, what do you believe should be the role of whale watching vessels? Yeah, it's, I think one thing that isn't talked about very much is how much the behavior of whale watching boats have changed. Like when the whales were declining in the early 2000s, I mean, things were completely unregulated here 
there was, you know, the guideline of staying 100 yards away, and that was about it. And the Whale Watch Association was really kind of the initiator of putting some precautions in place about approach distances and approach speeds and, and things of that sort. Um, and then we've gone through several vessel rulemaking processes to, you know, formalize some of those regulations into distance guidelines and, um, and slow go zone around the whales and that sort of thing. So I think, you know, when people think about what whale watching used to be like here in the late 90s and early 2000s, when not only was there a lot of commercial whale watching, but a lot of private boats on the water too, and you would regularly see dozens of boats around the whales a lot of them going at speed, you know, a lot of them, you know, leapfrogging, like parking in the path of the whales. And I, I don't think that was great. I mean, I don't think that was the best thing for especially a struggling population of whales, but things have changed so dramatically. And if anyone hasn't been whale watching here in the last 10 to 15 years, I definitely recommend that they go or, um, you know, watch even even watching the whales on the west side of San Juan Island. It's so different than it used to be, and I think what we have now is a really responsible group of professional operators that really they you know they're out there because they love these whales and they want to share these whales with people. And so I think the role of whale watching today is one is just that is to educate people about what's going on and give them the opportunity to see these whales because it does change lives, it changed my life, and I've seen it happen to other people. And then the second role is, is just what you said, it's the sentinel role that uh, when whale watching boats are on the water, they are a model of how to act for all the private boaters that may not be super familiar with first of all, what all the rules are, but also what does 300 yards look like on the water? What does seven knots look like on the water? And time and time again, um, when we're watching from shore, we see um, either enforcement boats and education boats like Soundwatch when they are on the water pointing to the whale watch vessels as a way to act. But even more significantly, and this is not captured in a lot of the data sets, is when there is no enforcement on the water or no Soundwatch on the water, boats just kind of see what the whale watch boats are doing and will slow down and follow follow their example and recently when we've had less commercial whale watching vessels with the southern residents there was a lot of times during jpod's recent visit where there were no whale watch vessels with them at all private boats had no idea they were there and we get a lot of these sort of high risk interactions where they're driving at speed right over the top of the whales even if they do see the whales and stop to look at them, they don't really know how close they should be, how fast they should right. be going. And we just see a lot more responsible behavior when whale watch boats are out there. And so that's why we continue to advocate for regulated and responsible whale watching, which I, I think is what we have right now. Agreed. I also think it's it's super duper cool now that, I mean, we as whale watchers have that that app that we can all look at. And it's really cool to see like, sentinel actions being posted now that's I think that's new this year mm -hmm. and uh I think that's really really informed our role and really kind of given us um positive reinforcement to to act in that regard so I think that's pretty cool um Next question is, you speak of the disparities between factions in the whale communities, uh, both in your book, and, and you and I have had a couple conversations as well, talking about it a little bit, um, between things, places like the Whale Museum and the Center of Whale Research, or between Soundwatch and the Pacific Whale Watch Association, and even elsewhere. 
Um, why, why do you think those disparities exist and what do you think it will take to mend those rifts? Yeah, I wish I had an answer to, to how to get past it, but it was really apparent, um, when I was doing all the interviews for my book, like this sort of topic of whale politics or the politics that we create around the whales came up literally in every single interview that I did, whether I brought it up or not. And so it's, it's a very real part of the story of kind of the mess that we've created here. And it's really easy to say, you know, people just need to put the past behind them and move on and put the whales first. But a lot of the things that have happened between these different groups or different individuals is really, you know, there's been a lot of significant breaches of trust and it's, it's, I can definitely understand how it's really hurt people and these are sort of long-lasting wounds that are hard to get over. Um, and so those, you know, because there's been these sort of, you know, we haven't treated each other very well. Um, and it's unfortunate because the whales suffer as a result. And I think we do have to find a way to get past it, even though it's not easy. And, um, you know, another example is we may disagree on what's best for the whales in in certain avenues um you know whale watching is a great example where some people think we need more regulations some people think we need less regulations and they can't get past that sticking point even if they agree the whales also need more salmon and let's all work together on that like there we can't get past that single place where we don't agree and really put the whales first and we've got to figure out how to do that um, is there, you know, they're continuing to decline. We're not doing enough for them. And we have a lot of, you know, I truly believe everyone who's involved is involved for the right reasons. They all care about these whales and we have to figure out how to put that first and recognize that in each other so that we can make progress on some of these more difficult issues. Yeah, that definitely would take some emotional stretching on a lot of people's parts, I'm sure. It would, um, but the whales deserve it and you know if we really want want things to turn around we've got to figure out how to get it done very good very good um so the orca task force started two years ago now i think uh considering that task force that governor inslee started and the measures it's taken to try and save the southern residents what do you feel have been its successes and conversely what have been its failures yeah i think I think a lot of people in the whale community focus on its failures, and it did have some, but it is important to recognize that it had successes too. And I think, one, it was the first time bringing all of those varied interest groups to one table to talk about the Southern residents. And that's, it's an important piece of the process. We need these people talking to each other, and we need these people talking to each other about whales. Um, It also, you know, it pushed forward, especially at the state level, Um, several environmental efforts that have been ongoing for several years and it sort of put the orca spin on things so to speak to push through some of these things that people have been fighting for for a long time Um, you know oil spill prevention um, actions uh, related to the tanker traffic in the Salish Sea and a lot of uh, Puget Sound stormwater uh, precautions and, and work down there was stuff people have been advocating for and once they realized you know how important it was not only to everything else in the ecosystem but to the southern residents um it sort of gave enough 
uh, incentive to push those things across the finish line and pass some really important state laws. And, and that did happen and that was important. But uh, the failing is it, it wasn't enough. And I think as great as it was to have all those people at the table, it was too many people. And they were all stakeholders and not scientists and not specialists in killer whales, let alone the southern residents. So there was a huge learning curve for a lot of these people about who these whales even were. And what do we know about them? What do we not know about them? And to, to ask these people to come up to speed on 40 plus years of history in a matter of months and then make these recommendations was a huge task to ask them to do. And I think, you know, while while it started a lot of great efforts and pushed some efforts across the finish line, um, it just, it wasn't big enough. It wasn't bold enough. And people did get caught up in defending, you know, their personal interests and not putting the whales first. Yeah. I did a, I did an interview with Stephen Holly and Michael Pearson in January and Stephen was, was pretty, pretty sharp about it. He, he definitely hammered the nail right on the head and he likened the the task force almost with all those stakeholders. It's like, you know, if you go to Chicago and you say, okay, let's, let's put like a task force together to get rid of crime. It was like, you know, inviting all these tasks, these, these stakeholders from like the dams and fisheries and all this other, it was like inviting the criminals to the table almost, you know, to have a say in how, how they were going to get rounded up. Yeah. And, and we really had the scientists, you know, given very brief opportunities, sometimes literally just two minutes of public comment an opportunity to inform the stakeholders and it really I think should have been reversed where we had a smaller group of scientists at the table and the stakeholders had the opportunity to inform them how different actions would affect their interests but we really we needed the whale advocates being the ones making the decisions for sure agreed agreed um Having watched these whales since your teenage years, you've gotten to know them better than most. What are some observations that you would want the public to be more aware of? Well, it's, that's a good question. What continues to amaze me about these whales is actually how well they're known, even by people who have never seen them before. <laughs> and, um, you know, people are tracking these whales as individuals and their family histories. And so I think they are, are really well known and really well understood. Um, I think the, one of the big things that I want, you know, I would hope that the public would gain a greater understanding of, especially here in Washington, is sort of the two different populations that we have. Like a lot of people aren't aware that we have two populations of killer whales here in the southern residents and the bigs and how different they are. And there's sometimes the Southern residents sort of seem like the celebrities mm -hmm. and sometimes people are even disappointed when they see Biggs killer whales Yes. when really, I mean, they're an amazing population in their own right. And we should be equally excited about having them here and celebrating their successes as a, you know, thriving, growing population. Uh, so on one hand, I think, you know, we need to appreciate the Biggs killer whales. On the other hand, we really need to recognize that they're not a replacement for the Southern residents. Like I mentioned earlier, how, how strikingly different they are when you see them and mm -hmm. how they behave differently and move through their habitat differently. And, um, every time the Southern residents come back after a long absence, which is unfortunately how we usually see them in, in recent years, it just, it's striking all over again that, wow, watching Southern residents is completely different. Yeah. And, um, 
I, I would just want, you know, the general public to understand that we have these two really cool populations of killer whales here that are amazing in their own right, but that are completely different from one another. And the opportunity that we have to compare and contrast the two populations where one is doing really well and one is doing really poorly is an incredible opportunity to understand not only what's going on for the whales, but what's going on in this whole ecosystem as it continues to change. Um, in, so since the announcement of J35's recent pregnancy, um, there's been a lot of excitement surrounding these whales. Um, I actually was on a whale watch today and had in two different instances was asked, oh, are we going to, are we going to see the pregnant, pregnant <laughs> whale today? Um, and there's this renewed energy to save, <clears throat> save them. It seems like. With the number of pregnancies we are aware of, are you optimistic that we will see a calf in the next year or two? Isn't isn't that amazing? I mean, that's that celebrity status like yeah. J thirty five has, right? Oh, she's pregnant. You know, like it's it's really amazing to see. Um, I sure hope we see at least a couple of calves in the next couple of years, but. I'm sort of cautiously optimistic because we do know from all the hormonal studies and the photogrammetry studies, you know, we've gotten the insight that these whales get pregnant pretty easily, which is good. Um, they are successfully getting pregnant, but we're seeing very few of those pregnancies result in live offspring. So it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword, I think, to sort of know ahead of time who's pregnant because we really get our hopes up about particular whales and then we may not see them with a calf. And, and it's hard and it should be hard, but um, I always try and like temper the excitement with some of these pregnancy announcements um, by that fact. And the really you know important thing that we've learned from all the research is that the failed pregnancies are directly tied to nutritional status of the whales. And I do take a lot of hope from, well, one, like I said, the fact that they're able to get pregnant, but also the baby boom that we had in 2015, where we had something like 11 births in 13 months, it really demonstrated that if the whales are getting enough food, they will successfully have offspring. And the population could turn around fairly quickly if they're getting enough to eat. So we have these females, quite a few of them of reproductive age that are successfully getting pregnant and we just need to give them that sort of final piece to make sure that they're supported enough metabolically to take on the task of, you know, rearing a, a fetus through an 18 month pregnancy and then being able to sustain that offspring um, going forward as they're nursing. And uh, I'm, I'm hopeful we see a calf, it would be especially great for J35. Um, but uh, but we'll have to see. <laughs> yeah, for sure. What uh, what would your specific recommendations be to get them that food? Yeah, it's you know it's not easy. Uh, salmon recovery is a complicated issue, but I think we need to take some big actions. Um, breaching the four lower Snake River dams is at the top of everyone's list. It's at the top of my list as one of the biggest ticket items that we could do. But it does have to go beyond that. Um, we need to talk about fish farms in BC. We need to talk about fisheries management in Alaska and making sure that the harvest there takes the Southern residents into account. Um, even though the Southern residents aren't in Alaska, uh, the Alaskan fisheries are what we call mixed stock fisheries where they're catching fish from not just Alaskan rivers, they're catching fish from the Fraser River, from the Columbia and Snake Rivers. And uh, that needs to be taken into account. 
because we have crashing salmon runs down here and the whales and, and lots of other species are suffering the consequences of that. So, um, yeah, those are probably the three biggest items I think we need to address, but we need to um, take bigger and bolder action on a coastwide level uh, to get these whales the fish they need. Um, obviously, knowing the whales as you do, you've gotten to know the individuals in this population. You write of J41. Eclipse is your personal favorite. She's also my favorite. Because well, <laughs> she's just the best whale. She's just the best <laughs> whale. Uh, why is she your favorite? And then do you have any other favorites, perhaps even in the Biggs population? Yeah. I So she got a soft spot in my heart um, because she's the killer whale that I saw closest to her birth. Um, she was born in the Sailor Sea, and I saw her just a couple of days later. She remains the tiniest killer whale I've ever seen. Uh, so small, still fetal folds in her head. And uh, so, of course, I was smitten uh, and, you know, just <laughs> fell in love with her based on that encounter. But I've had a lot of really memorable encounters with her over the years. Um, I remember uh, kayaking and, you know, the one time I've seen whales from a kayak, it was her and her mother, J-19, that swam around the kelp bed we were in. I remember seeing her spy hop with a salmon in her mouth when she was three years old and it was, you know, in my mind, learning how to fish and kind of showing it off. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, she's been a special whale and a special family, you know, group to follow. Um, yeah, really it's, it's hard to pick favorites because so many of them have intriguing stories and mm -hmm. have had so many memorable encounters with them, but among the bigs, my favorite family is probably the T-123s. Um, I, you know, sometimes we nickname some of the family groups, and I've nicknamed them the aviators because <laughs> uh, they like to fly. Um, more than any other uh, matriline that I've seen, they go after sea lions a lot. And even though I don't think I've even ever seen them successfully take one down, it's almost like it's fun. They just, all of a sudden, they're all lunging through the air and these big dolphin leaps going after a sea lion. And, uh, yeah, they're just super fun to watch. So, yeah, uh, they're probably my favorite among the bigs. Stanley's a pretty impressive boy. He's too. handsome. He's <laughs> handsome. And then um, T-123C Lucky, too, once uh, came over and checked out our research vessel. And nice. uh, so whenever you, you know, have that mutual curiosity moment where <laughs> they come over and look at you, that's that's a quick track to your heart oh, and, <laughs> and sure. becoming a favorite. For sure. Um, my last question, and we always ask this question at the end of our interviews, what do you think that humans can learn from the killer whales? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And, you know, we we're talking earlier about the human politics and how we kind of get in our own way, um, by holding on to grudges or finding ways to, you know, divide each other or, or whatever it is. And among the Southern residents, their ability to overcome is something that I personally return to a lot as a source of hope. And J35 was one of the most striking examples of that. Obviously, she went through a terrible ordeal, you know, grieving the loss of her calf, carrying the body for 17 days. And after that season, the next time I saw J-Pod was in early March of the following year. And they were in San Juan Channel in what we call a cuddle puddle, right? All rolling around at the surface, frolicking together, lots of spy hopping, tail slapping. And right in the middle of the group, one whale kept breaching over and over again, you know, half a dozen times. And then 10 minutes later, another three breaches. And it was the same whale. 
And later on, I looked at my photos and saw that it was G35. And she had, you know, sort of found her way back to being a joyful, active member of J-Pod after going through what she did. And we were, you know, we were really concerned about her as she went through that. Like, one, in the immediate sense, like, is she eating? Is she, you know, is she physically going to survive this? And then obviously long-term in the emotional sense like that was a huge scar on her and would she come back right would she come back and um sort of recover and be be a member of j-pod again and uh seeing that was just so inspirational that going through what she did she found a way to come back and be this playful whale that she had always been and then of course now knowing that she's pregnant again and you know the hope that we have in that and they just, they seem to find a way to overcome difficult situations and resolve conflicts, which they must have because any complex social society is going to have conflict. And they seem to do that without any aggression. Uh, we know they, they don't seem to fight each other. They don't seem to hurt each other. Um, they're not territorial with each other. And how do they do that? And it's a mystery to me, and it's I think it's a mystery to us as humans, but... If they find a way to do it, surely we can find a way to do it too. And so that's like my, that's my biggest lesson that I think we have to learn from them is just how do we all get along? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Cool. Do you have anything else you'd like to add at all or um, I just would encourage people to uh, check us out at Orca Behavior Institute on Facebook if you don't follow us already. Um, we really try and bring. Um, a lot of the stories and a lot of the current science and news and all of that to the general public to help people sort of keep tabs on what's going on here, what we're seeing, and how people can stay engaged um, in the advocacy for these whales going forward. Nice. And like I said, definitely check out her book, Endangered Orcas. It's a great read. Um, awesome. Well, thanks for talking to me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining, guys. Make sure to check out that Facebook page. Also, feel free to check out any of our social media pages. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff. If you guys want to continue to support this project, leave us a review, give us a follow somewhere, um, or you can purchase some merchandise or be a part of our Patreon. So feel free to check any of those out. But hope you guys have a great week.